Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Allison Kosick in for Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. On the move... As ships head through the Suez Canal again, uh, global trade could take weeks to recover. Crisis contained. Banks lose billions on hedge fund failure, but wider market chaos averted. Virus verdict, the World Health Organization says COVID-19 came from animals, not a lab. It's Tuesday, let's make a move. Welcome again to First Move. Great to have you with us. Let's begin with a check of the markets. U.S. stocks are on track for a lower open with rate-sensitive tech stocks leading the decline as bond yields rise again. Benchmark 10-year U.S. Treasury yields, which had been holding steady over the past week, they rose to fresh 14-month highs earlier today on hopes for economic reopenings. Yields are higher in Europe and Asia, too. Investors, meantime, still on guard for any wider fallout after the failure of New York-based investment fund Archegos Capital. The losses to global financial firms are still being tallied up, but the feeling right now is that damage has been contained. Two of the fund's biggest holdings, Viacom CBS and Discovery, are higher pre-market after another day of selling pressure on Monday. Relief that the Archegos saga hasn't turned into anything more significant helped boost Asian stocks today. Europe is mostly higher, too, with the German DAX hitting fresh records. Let's get on this in our drivers. Claire Sebastian joins me now. Claire, great to see you. It was interesting to see how all this played out yesterday. Apparently not anything uh, wider as far as those broader implications for the market, but lots of questions still. How was this able to happen? Do we know how Archegos bypassed regulations in the U.S.? Yeah, I was in still a lot of questions. I think short-term major fallout might have been averted, but as you say, bigger questions. And one of them is, what will this mean for the sort of prime broker credit desks at the banks? Are they going to be feeling a little less generous towards hedge funds? And what will that mean for the markets going forward if these firms can't rack up the kind of leverage that we saw at Archegos Capital? I will say that we've heard for the first time from that company. We have a statement from them this morning. They say via a a, a spokesperson, this is a challenging time for the family office of Archegos Capital Management, our partners and employees. All plans are being discussed uh, as Mr. Wang, who's the the, the founder and, and head of that family office, and the team determine the best path forward. So not saying a lot, but interesting that they are breaking their silence at this moment, because of course, it, it took a little while for, for, for Wall Street and, and all the experts to, to, to uncover who actually was behind this major file, fire sale uh, of stocks on Friday. And I think that's part of what you're alluding to there, the questions around how they were able to rack up these kinds of holdings, significant holdings uh, in certain companies without anyone really knowing about it. 
Yeah, another burning question is, is Bill Huang himself, who in 2012 pleaded guilty to using insider information to trade Chinese bank stocks with another with another company. How was it that investment banks didn't blacklist him? How was it that he was able to just jump into another firm and trade again? Well, we know that he was briefly uh, sort of off the books at, at Goldman Sachs, but then apparently they, they allowed him back and, and, and were lending to him. You know, it's, it's really not clear. It's very murky at this point, Alison. That was, a, you know, a fairly significant uh, set of charges back in 2012. The fine was in the region of $44 million. So, and you know, relatively not that long ago, within the past decade. But, you know, under a new firm, a family office, he was able to, to, to use what's called total return swaps, complex financial instruments to, 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 to leverage these holdings that he had in the market. And I think this will spark further questions going forward, especially as we continue to be in this, this sort of rock bottom interest rate environment where lending uh, is so easy. Yeah, plenty of risk takers in this environment. Claire Sebastian, thanks very much. And we are waiting for the official report from the World Health Organization on the origin of COVID-19. This as EU leaders discuss a possible treaty for future pandemics, saying no one country can defeat them alone. Salma Abdelaziz is on the story and joins me live. Hi, Salma. Hi, Alison. So uh, this joint op-ed written by uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson, French President Emmanuel Macron, the German Chancellor and 21 other world leaders. It was published in multiple newspapers around the world, multiple languages. And in it, they call for an international treaty for global pandemic preparedness. They draw parallels between what's happening now and the post-World War II world. And they say this is the time to prepare for the next global health crisis. No one country can deal with it alone, that there needs to be a treaty that is underpinned by the World Health, World, World Health Organization rather, and by other international organizations that can help uh, prepare the world for when this happens, if this happens next time. They say this is a time for global leaders to be inclusive, fair, equitable. But Alison, a lot of people say this is ironic coming at a time when the UK and the EU are involved in what some have described as a tit for tat vaccine war uh, with the EU accusing the UK of vaccine nationalism, the UK accusing the EU of trying to cut off supplies, of course, of vital immunizations. Beyond that, of course, you look at this uh, at this article, at this op-ed and the United States is not in it. How do you have a treaty without the United States? And crucially, China's not in it. A lot of accusations from uh, Western leaders against China, blaming them for the pandemic. So how do you have a global treaty without China? And I'm just talking about the wealthiest, most powerful nations in the world here. We haven't even begun to speak about developing nations where vaccine rates are uh, nowhere near what they are in the West, of course. You have countries like India and South Africa leading the charge to call for a patent, the, intelli- the patents around these immunizations to be lifted so that they could manufacture these vaccines for their own population. But the EU, the UK, the United States have so far stood against those calls to lift, waive those patents temporarily, allow those countries to develop these vaccines for their own countries. So this is all well and good, sounds flowery and persuasive in writing, but to Many people, this looks like just words, just rhetoric, Allison. Yeah, there's a lot of skepticism, obviously, for this proposed treaty. Any talk of how to actually, you know, focus on coordination, especially with supplies, if there is another pandemic? 
Well, in, uh, in this newspaper article, they're talking about using existing systems. So working through the World Health Organization, working through the United Nations. But we have seen that this multilateral approach has fallen apart very quickly over the last few months. I mean, just take the example of what's happening between the UK and the EU right now. A very bitter public uh, dispute playing out over vaccine supplies, uh, uh, threats of blockading from the EU, blockading vaccine supplies. That dispute is still being worked out. Of course, both both sides have said they want to find cooperation. Uh, and again, look at developing countries, India, South Africa, 60 other countries pleading with uh, the wealthiest nations in the world, begging for a, a waiver, a patent waiver, so they can begin to immunize their own populations. That hasn't happened so far. So yes, there are these global structures, the, these international systems at play, but they're not being used right now, Alison. And it's up to these leaders, up to these global leaders to live up to those words of equity, fairness, equality. That's what they ended their, their article on. We haven't seen that yet. And I think it's going to be about putting your money where your mouth is. Okay, Selma Abdelaziz, thanks so much. And stay with us on, on First Move as the World Health Organization's report on the origins of COVID-19 is officially going to be released this hour. And we'll get reaction from our international security editor, Nick Payton Walsh. Traffic through the Suez Canal has restarted after being paralyzed for almost a week by a stranded ship. Authorities say the backlog of vessels could take days to clear. John Dapterios joins me live now. So, yes, we've got this big backlog to deal with in the Suez Canal and very differing views on how fast it can be cleared up. Yes, indeed, Allison. Uh, we had uh, 422 vessels in this parking lot of the canal there. Uh, backed up, as you were suggesting. But uh, you know what? The Egyptians are stepping on it in a very big way. They've set very high targets for themselves. Uh, and the Suez uh, Canal Authority is suggesting they've already moved 113. They plan to add 90 before the night is over. So they would be halfway there. And their target to Friday is three and a half days is the completion time. And the, uh, those in the international community think that might be a little bit too aggressive. Maris, for example, the largest shipper, was suggesting uh, not quite, probably five, six, seven days for this to happen. Lloyd's List was uh, suggesting the same. But I have to remind those players uh, that Egypt, when they decided to widen the canal and, and expand the ports of Said and uh, Suez in the north and the south, uh, it was a three-year project, and uh, President Alzizi wanted it done in a year, and they did deliver upon it. Now, there's question marks, of course, about the supply chain. If we can bring up the uh, graphic here, here's some of the worrying sectors, if you will. Uh, toilet paper sounds familiar, right, because it happened during COVID-19. The hoarding that took place, this is different. This is the supply of paper to the manufacturers. Coffee, you can understand this, uh, Latin America, Ethiopia, Africa, Southeast Asia coming into the big markets of Europe and the United States. Would I say it's a crisis? Uh, I don't think so. Furniture, I don't think any, anybody's going to panic if they don't have the latest uh, models in IKEA. IKEA was complaining about the bottlenecks right now. Uh, and finally here, uh, gas. Prices going up? I don't get it, to be honest with you, because OPEC's going to meet on Thursday. They're likely to leave production where it is. Uh, we had about uh, 10% of the overall uh, tankers there held up, about 40 on the top side, but they're released right now, Allison, so I don't see a bottleneck there as well. Where this will hit is shipping rates. I spoke to a couple of CEOs in this sector in the last 48 hours. Uh, in some cases, it's doubled. Same thing for the LNG tankers as well. So this could be fed through over time. But now that we've been unlocked, as the Egyptians said, can you imagine trying to unload the ever-given 
when it was in the water and trying to get rid of the container so it could float. That's not the case anymore. Uh, that uh, boat is under investigation. We don't know when it's going to be released. But right now we know the free trade is starting to open up, perhaps not as fast as the international players were worried about. Uh, and it could be solved by Monday of next week at the latest, it seems. By the way, that unloading of the cargo would have been interesting to watch, over 10,000 pieces of cargo. One more question for yes. you. The Suez Canal is vital to Egypt on uh, the revenue side and to feed product into its ports. I'm curious, how has Egypt fared during this crisis? Well, I have to say they've been quick to respond. They didn't have all the equipment, and that's not too surprising as a developing economy, but a very large one of 90 million people, by the way, which has been growing uh, in the last year out of the pandemic. So pretty high growth at the same time. But they had to bring in the two super tugs to join the other 10, and that helped unlock the, uh, the ever given, uh, of course. And the dredging operations that took place that brought in the international players. Now, there's some question mark about whether they need to revisit the southern half of the canal and to expand it yet again. President Alzizi had a press conference in the Suez today with the chairman of the Suez Canal Authority, and he was asked that question. He says... Perhaps we need to revisit. They put in $8 billion between 15 and 16. Uh, can they afford to do so again? By the way, some of the Gulf states like here in the UAE, particularly Abu Dhabi, helped in that project. So if they want to expand, they'll probably have to knock on the door of other uh, partners uh, around the world. But it is a credibility issue for Egypt. It's moved quickly, for example, to get the ships out. Uh, are the safety precautions in place? Can they guarantee smooth trade in the future? And, or do we have to change the just-in-time model? That's the question the manufacturers are asking right now, particularly, Alice, with a very important artery like this uh, in the Suez. It was put to the test here with the super tankers that we're using today, the super container carriers, uh, and it's raising a lot of question marks also for Egypt to batten down the hatches and make sure it's secure. Absolutely. Okay, John Devterios, thanks so much. And, John, we are going to hear from you later in the show when we are going to be talking about oil. We'll see you in a bit. And these are the stories making headlines around the world. The Derek Chauvin murder trial in Minneapolis is set to resume next hour after a dramatic opening day. Prosecutors, excuse me, played the full video of Chauvin pinning George Floyd to the ground as he was gasping for air, which went on for more than nine minutes. As CNN's Omar Jimenez reports, the trial comes 10 months after Floyd's killing set off nationwide protests. The most important numbers you will hear in this trial are 929. What happened in those 9 minutes and 29 seconds? 9 minutes and 29 seconds. That's the corrected length of time prosecutors say Derek Chauvin knelt on George Floyd's neck. I can breathe. During day one of opening statements, prosecutor Jerry Blackwell played a bystander's video in full for the jury. Mr. Derek Chauvin betrayed this badge when he used excessive and unreasonable force upon the body of Mr. George Floyd. Chauvin faces three counts, second and third degree murder and second degree manslaughter. The defense argues that Floyd died of previous health conditions and his methamphetamine and fentanyl use. An autopsy said drug use was a significant condition, but it listed his cause of death as heart failure during restraint. Derek Chauvin did exactly what he had been trained to do over the course of his 19-year career. The use of force is not attractive, but it is a necessary component of policing. Stop, check his 
Chauvin's attorney also argues the crowd that formed at the scene distracted the officers. They're screaming at him, causing the officers to divert their attention from the care of Mr. Floyd to the threat that was growing in front of them. The jury heard testimony from three witnesses, including the 911 dispatcher who called the police sergeant while watching surveillance video of the scene. At one point, she said, even thinking the real-time video froze, given how long the officers were on top of Floyd. My instincts were telling me that something's wrong. The jury also heard from Donald Williams, a mixed martial arts instructor who was at the scene. He's trained in the use of chokeholds and says he yelled to Chauvin of the blood choke he had Floyd in. Every time his shoulder is moving, he's pushing that pressure down on his neck. Black lives, they matter, The nation has been waiting 10 months for this trial. Demonstrators flooded the surrounding streets outside the courthouse in Minneapolis. Floyd's brother was in the courtroom Monday. He says this trial is a test for the justice system. America is on trial right now. Minneapolis, Minnesota, they will have to get this right. We're tired of people being killed and slaughtered. Because if you can't get justice for this as a black man in America, what can you get justice for? Stay with CNN for complete and continuing coverage of the Derek Chauvin murder trial beginning next hour. Thailand is denying reports that it forced refugees from Myanmar to return home. Activists say more than 2,000 people were turned back after fleeing airstrikes in southern Myanmar and are now hiding in the jungle. Myanmar's military carried out bombing raids Sunday on villages controlled by an armed ethnic group. Portugal is sending 60 troops to assist special forces in Mozambique after a terror attack left dozens of people dead. Fighters affiliated with ISIS overran the northern town of Palma Wednesday near a multi-billion dollar gas project. The coordinated assault lasted for days. Witnesses say some victims were beheaded. Still to come on First Move, the U.S. Secretary of State describes relations with Beijing as increasingly adversarial. We'll take a look at the escalating tensions. And United Arab Emirates launches a new benchmark for oil. Can it change the way oil is bought and sold in the Mideast? Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick, live from New York, where we remain on track for a lower Wall Street open. Tech is set to fall for a second straight session, pressured by higher bond yields. The Dow is set to fall from record highs it hit yesterday. Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, two companies that did business with failed Archegos Capital, are holding steady in the pre-market as fears of a wider contagion fade. All this as markets brace for a busy financial news cycle with the U.S. jobs report coming out Friday and first quarter earnings season just around the corner. U.S. President Joe Biden announces details of his new multi-trillion dollar spending proposal tomorrow. Rising yields could reflect the need for fresh borrowing if his plan is passed, as well as higher, the higher growth it could trigger. Christina Hooper joins me now. She is the chief global market strategist at Invesco. Great to see you. Good to be on. Thanks for having me. All right, let's start with Archegos and the impact of its massive margin call um, over the past couple of days. You know, it seems to be limited so far to a handful of stocks. I want to hear from you. What does 
you know, what does this tell you about the excessive risk taking happening in not just the broader market, you know, with hedge funds and SPACs, but, you know, in digital assets too? Well, I think the takeaway is that there is always, no matter what kind of market environment we're in, there is always risk taking going on. And we have to recognize that some of the greatest risks are ones we don't even realize, those black swans. Uh, this is no different than some of the other events that have occurred in the recent past that have shaken investor confidence temporarily and created volatility, such as the Reddit GameStop stock uh, debacle that occurred just a few months ago. Let's talk about higher yields because that's uh, certainly a factor that's been driving where stocks have been going. Um, specifically, the pace of the yield is really, I think, what is making investors unnerved on the 10-year Treasury. Uh, how high do you think it's going to go over the next 12 to 18 months? Oh, I think the 10-year yield, even in just the next few months, could get to that 2% level. Uh, when we look out at the next 12 to 18 months, uh, it could certainly go uh, higher than that, um, getting closer to that 3% level, although I would expect it to come down somewhat, right? Because this is about expectations around a strong uh, rebound in economic growth tied to the reopening of the economy. And that isn't likely to last a very long time, um, but it should be a powerful burst when it happens. Love it or hate it, uh, Wall Street watches the Fed uh, for, you know, for cues. Jay Powell has pretty much acknowledged that the Fed is going to be behind the curve where inflation is concerned. And he seems to be OK with that. But do you think that's the right strategy to act only after we see those those yields go up and, um, you know, this, the Fed just sits on the sidelines? I think it is the right strategy, just given that we have a multi-decade history of being in a very low inflation environment. And that's really what the Fed is counting on, that longer term trends hold, like demographics, like innovation. Uh, and that all suggests that if we do see an increase in inflation, it will truly be transitory and therefore the Fed won't have to act. So that's the strategy. And it seems like a pretty sound strategy right now, even though investors aren't necessarily trusting the Fed on this one. Okay, but rising, rising interest rates have certainly uh, spooked tech investors. We've seen tech stocks really take it on the chin. Do you think the FANG trade is over? I don't think the FANG trade is over over the longer term, right? I don't think tech, I don't think innovation is over over the long run either. But they are higher valuation names in general. And so they need to adjust to higher rate levels. Uh, and so every time we see uh, an increase in the 10-year yield, uh, especially when it's on the faster side, as we've seen recently, that creates a period of digestion primarily for those higher valuation names like technology. However, for a long-term investor, it does represent a tactical buying opportunity. Okay, we are right around the corner from a new quarterly earnings season. I want to hear what you're expecting to hear from companies as far as pressures on their revenue and profit. So I would actually expect to see improved confidence in the outlook. So we may not get 
get great earnings reports. I think companies have, have been very good at have learned to manage earnings expectations well. So I think we'll see the majority of companies, uh, as we've seen in past quarters, meet or beat expectations. But what I'm particularly interested in is their outlook for the rest of the year. We're seeing business confidence growing. Um, anecdotally, um, what we're hearing is companies very excited about this reopening, uh, expecting it to be very powerful. And so I would expect that to filter into comments, uh, into projections about earnings later this year. And I, I think in general, uh, what we'll see is, is quite positive sentiment. Very quickly, do you expect the bond market to react to the legislative push for a sweeping infrastructure plan here in the U.S.? I do think we will see some reaction, uh, but we have to recognize that the bond market reacts to a variety of different factors, including growth expectations and inflation expectations. And I would argue that it is more being driven right now by growth expectations as opposed to inflation expectations, mm -hmm. but they're all wrapped into any kind of stimulus packages that we're talking mm -hmm. about. All right, Christina Hooper, thanks so much. Chief Global Market Strategist at Invesco, great talking with you. And the opening bell is next. First move, I'm Allison Costing, and that was the opening bell on Wall Street. And as expected, it's a mostly lower open for U.S. stocks. Tech leading the declines as bond yields rise. Bitcoin is on the rise. It was closing in on 60,000 earlier today as both Visa and PayPal make new moves to support the cryptocurrency. Meantime, Volkswagen means business in the race for electric car supremacy. The company briefly posting on its media site yesterday that it will change its name to Volts, V-O-L-T-S, Volkswagen in the U.S. Get it? The announcement was removed soon after and raised the question that it was an April Fool's joke. But Volkswagen posted the official release today. It's the investigation the world has waited months for, and it's being released right now. The World Health Organization is issuing its final report on the origins of COVID-19, and it says animals, not a lab, were the, likely, were the most likely cause. Nick Payton Walsh joins us live now with the details. Nick, great to see you. You know, the first question that comes to mind, obviously, besides where the origins of the, of the virus came from, is how credible is this report, knowing that the team arrived a year after the pandemic began and only received restricted access, and that China kept a close eye on them as well? Yeah, you have to treat all the findings with the knowledge that, yes, they were late getting to the source. A lot of the information that this WHO panel of 17 international experts working with 70 Chinese experts, a lot of what they got had essentially not been vetted, but certainly provided by the Chinese government. So, yes, a lot of the numbers they got weren't necessarily raw data scraped from the surface, if you like, of quite what they were trying to analyze. But if you look at this 123 pages worth of analysis, it's a pretty muscular 
body of work. It delves into a lot of areas, frankly, that would make the Chinese government to some degree uncomfortable. Certainly, it looks at a rise in influenza-like illnesses in December. Uh, we've reported on that past uh, using leaked documents from the Chinese government, and that would suggest possibly a completely unrelated influenza outbreak that may have made it hard to spot the beginnings of coronavirus, or maybe the beginnings of coronavirus earlier than had previously been thought. And there are other suggestions, too, in this report about the number of different variations of the disease that occurred early on genetically, uh, and also possibly, too, in the role that wet markets all around the city of Wuhan, not just the one we talk about, Huanan, uh, they may have played, too, in the role of this outbreak spreading initially. So it's not entirely what the, I think the Chinese government would like to see. There's no smoking gun there of uh, Chinese lack of transparency, certainly, uh, but it does provide a lot of information which will in the future uh, lead other studies to come to different findings. We'll also ask, I'm sure now, the Chinese government to give more information to insist or assist further investigation. And you mentioned, too, the lab leak theory there as well, popular with Trump-era US officials, lacking in any real evidence at all. This report deals with that as being the least likely of four possibilities that have sort of been bandied around, so to speak, globally, uh, saying that the Wuhan Institute of Virology themselves had in fact had their staff tested. That all came out negative after they moved to facility near to the Hunan Seafood Market in early December. The evidence there is sort of circumstantial, frankly. Yes, the testing done by Chinese officials, but again, no evidence behind the lab leak theory. So park that. The real conclusion from this is they simply don't know precisely, and that's how science and nature works, but the real theory has all along been, and is espoused by this report as well, as being that it probably originated in a bat, then went through what's called an intermediary animal. That could be a mink or a cat, if you read this report, suspicion pointed in that direction, and then possibly in the wildlife trade, ended up infecting humans. A vital thing to realise here, Alison, I know this is all very technical and complicated, but it gets to the heart, essentially, of how this can be stopped from happening again. If we don't know how it happened this time, how can we possibly make the changes we need to prevent future pandemics, particularly as mankind pushes more and more into natural areas where it wasn't uh, a presence a century ago? But is there any indication that changes would be made? So let's say it did originate in bats. Would the changes needed to keep a, a, a virus from transferring like that, would those kind of changes actually happen? You know, is this being acknowledged in China? Well, look, I mean, obviously, if we don't get to the truth of what happened, then it's extremely hard for public moves to be made by any government responsible for that to stop it from happening again. Yes, there is uh, a very acute awareness amongst Chinese science uh, and its virologists that viruses uh, in bats can be deadly to humans. And because of the, the metabolism of bats, when they flap their wings, they have a high body temperature at times, which means that viruses inside their anatomy are actually able to survive when they get into humans. When you and I get a temperature, it's to kill off a virus normally. And these viruses are used to high temperatures so often survive so that's the role bats play China's very aware of that seems to have been studying that for some time they have closed some of the wildlife markets uh, some of the wet markets in China after the outbreak initially uh, and so they're obviously uh, acutely aware of what could have happened the point is is there going to be a global consensus down the line years from now about how this did happen and that's what's not clear in this report right now Alison Okay, Nick Payton Walsh, great context. Thanks very much. Up next, the WHO report comes amid rising tensions between China and the West over human rights, Hong Kong, and trade. We discuss with a former U.S. ambassador to China.
heard earlier, the WHO investigation into COVID-19 increased tensions between China and the West. It's one of several issues testing the relationship. This morning, Beijing tightened its grip on Hong Kong by overhauling the electoral system. The UK says that breaches international law. Meanwhile, China has warned Western companies raising human rights issues to stay out of politics. Joining me is Max Baucus. He's the former U.S. ambassador to China under President Obama, Barack Obama, and joins me live. Great to see you. Thank you. Doing well. Thank you. I want to ask you uh, first your thoughts about uh, the WHO report on the origins of COVID that just came out. How credible do you think this report is? Uh, you know, there are a lot of questions of how much influence China has over the WHO and thus the outcome of this report. I think it's um, probably uh, uh, in the ballpark. I think the, the report basically says what the weight of world scientific opinion thinks about the origin of the virus and, and how it's handled, namely probably originated maybe in November, um, not in January or February as, as some commonly think. And probably came from animals, probably bats, um, probably not from cold, frozen food, and uh, probably not escaped from the, uh, uh, a laboratory. So I, I think it's fairly accurate. The slight problem, obviously, is uh, when the United States pulled out of the WHO, that started to lower the credibility of the WHO. And uh, China saw there's advantage there for China. So China started to spend more people, more personnel with the WHO, and probably influenced the WHO a little bit. So really, it's, uh, bottom line is I think the report is probably pretty close to the mark. I think the WHO now has to restore its credibility, and I think China probably wants to help WHO restore its credibility, as does the United States, since we're not members. Okay, switching gears here, many companies like Nike, Burberry, H&M, they depend on China for a big chunk of revenue, and now their targets for Chinese officials and consumers who are waging a campaign against these companies to, point, uh, to boycott them over uh, Xinjiang cotton. What kind of long-term impact do you think could could happen on Western companies that depend on China uh, to make or buy their products? Um, you know, that a huge, once again, once again, a huge chunk of their revenue comes from China. Well, unfortunately, uh, we're, uh, we're in this toxic brew of sanctions and boycotts, and, and frankly, it's um, not very productive. Um, it's it's a little silly. It kind of reminds me a little bit of a kids in, a, in the kindergarten you know, calling each other names. It starts first with the um, <clears throat> sanctions by American government and the UK and some others um, against China for alleged human rights violations in Xinjiang. Add to that some companies, American companies, have been maybe stopped to buy cotton from Xinjiang, and it just it bothers the Chinese government. The Chinese government now is sanctioned some Americans and UK personnel over this spat. Um, I, I think, frankly, it's not the, the, the sanctions issue is going to last a little longer, I think, than will the, the boycott issue. I know the Chinese government has tried to encourage um, Chinese citizens to, to boycott, say, Nike, and that really hurts Nike because most of Nike's profits are in China. I think it'll last a little while, but not, not for a long while. I don't think it's nearly as enduring well, or, or last as long as the the Chinese national boycott against South Korean goods a, a year or two ago. But it's, it's, it's a concern, um, but it really takes cool heads for the United States and both countries, frankly, to be less public in their criticism of the others. When they're public and sanctions are very public, that tends to cause more problems than it solves. 
Of course, another issue that I mentioned at the top, Beijing becoming more entrenched in Hong Kong's political system. Is there anything the U.S. can do to influence what's happening there? I, I think that um, um, Hong Kong is one of, of China's core issues. President Xi has said that many times. Just don't mess with us in Hong Kong. It's a core issue. It's, it's ours, so forth. I remember when I was at the summit between President Obama and President Xi, I was very struck with a single issue that seemed to get under President Xi Jinping's skin the most, and that was Hong Kong. He accused um, Americans of fomenting unrest in Hong Kong. That really bothered him. And he looks at um, the prior history. It was once China's territory a long time ago. He's looking at 2047 when Hong Kong will revert to China. Answer your question is, there's probably not a lot we can directly do um, we can do what we can to uh, uh, attract world opinion against uh, uh, the Chinese in Hong Kong. But be honest, I don't think it's going to make much difference. Okay. It's not going to change. That's not going to change Xi Jinping's attitude toward Hong Kong. Let me switch gears very quickly. Binance hired you to provide guidance and advice for them. That's the crypto exchange. Um, uh, you're going to be working uh, to get information for them about regulation. Do you think coordinated regulation is on the way for digital assets? And what would something like that actually look like? Uh, oh, yeah, it has to come. It has to. And I think um, um, coin miners as well as exchanges want it because that will give it credibility. And my job is to just to help uh, the industry, in this case, simply help Binance um, understand what needs to be done to build up its reputation, uh, to be trusted. And for a company, any company to be trusted, it has to stay not only within the letter of the law, but also the spirit of the law. And Binance is, is a company that's going to do that. I've talked to them daily. Um, they're doing it. it this is a very fast moving industry. And a lot of people just don't understand it. And I think it's important for regulators to be careful. At the same time, and that is move, move, move to start to regulate it. Same time, I think there should be congressional hearings on cryptocurrencies uh, in, in America because uh, when there are congressional hearings, more facts come out, that tends to allow regulators and others to know what to do. Yeah, but would any of the lawmakers understand what's going on if they had, if they had <laughs> hearings? That's the question, That's right? right. That's right. I, they, I think they should have hearings because that will help them begin to understand something that's quite complicated and, and an industry that's coming. There's no doubt in my mind that uh, crypto coins will be very much in our lives not too far down the road. Okay, Max Bacchus, uh, former U.S. ambassador to China under President Obama. Thank you so much. Great to talk with you. You bet. Thank you. Coming up on First Move, the UAE's Mervin crude is going global. Details on the new oil benchmark next. Welcome back. I'm Alison Kosick. And the bitterness about Brexit goes on between the UK and the EU. The latest flare up is about border checks on goods coming from the UK into Northern Ireland, which is still inside the EU Customs Union. CNN's Nick Robertson has the details. New writing on Northern Ireland's walls is a chill blast from the province's violent past. Anger is rising over Brexit customs checks, known as the Northern Ireland Protocols. The messages threaten Northern Ireland's Good Friday peace agreement, a red line for US President Joe Biden. In pro-British unionist communities, where frustrations are strongest, fears of violence are growing. And you see a lot of writing on the wall. It's scary. It's scary, and I really wouldn't go, want to go back. I mean, I grew up in troubles, and I really wouldn't want to go back to that again. 
Murals of gunmen on the streets here are nothing new, but this is something else. The name of Ireland's Deputy Prime Minister and his address written on the wall, now quickly painted out. That tells you tensions here are rising. The lightning rod for discontent is customs checks on trucks like these crossing the Irish Sea from mainland UK. Northern Ireland is inside the EU single market for goods, different to the rest of the UK. So goods now require checks. Truckers face costly new delays. We've had to employ 10 people to do customs clearance, to make sure we can do traces, to make sure that all the paperwork is correct. Everyone is impacted. New soil controls mean plants previously sourced from mainland UK are now easier to get from the EU. I feel we have been let down, yes. I feel that maybe there wasn't enough um, investigation as to what the rules were going to be. A shared soil is at the very essence of identity politics here. Any erosion of that unfettered bond with mainland UK is for some unionists an existential threat. Tempers are fraying. We're simply saying to them, tear up the agreement which breaks up the United Kingdom, tear up the agreement which breaks up all the promises you made to the people of Northern Ireland that you would have unfettered access to your biggest market in GB. Ominously, loyalist paramilitaries, still dangerous in some pro-British communities, have withdrawn support from the Good Friday peace agreement, according to their representatives. It's very easy for matters to spiral out of control, but for the COVID restrictions, there would already have been street demonstrations. I have no doubt the ports would have been blockaded. Pressure is mounting on Boris Johnson, and not just from pro-British unionists. He angered the EU, drawing a lawsuit from them by unilaterally extending the customs changes transition period from three to nine months. Faces trade deal difficulties with the US if Northern Ireland's peace breaks down. And has lost the confidence of non-unionist politicians here too. I don't think Boris Johnson truly understands uh, what he's dealing with here. He just thinks it's something that can be managed and kept on a low rolling boil. Finding compromise will be hard. Johnson's relations with the EU are worsening. Not for the first time. The United States could find itself brokering Northern Ireland out of trouble. Nick Robertson, CNN, Belfast, Northern Ireland. Middle East launching a new oil benchmark. The UAE is now trading futures contracts for its Mervin crude in a bid to take on Brent and WTI on global markets. John Defterios is live in Abu Dhabi with the details. Hi, John. Hi, Allison. Yeah, that's interesting. The two incumbents have never really faced a challenge, Brent and WTI. In fact, Brent, this is an interesting number, controls about 80% of international futures trade when it comes to oil right now. But the actual production of Brent has been declining to just 1 million barrels a day. Mirban here in Abu Dhabi has two times that in terms of capacity. A lot of demand coming from Asia, particularly China, Japan, and South Korea. And Adnoc, the state oil giants, bringing a number of partners to the table with weight, BP, Total, Vitol, the giant trader, and others. So it thinks it has a fighting chance here, if you will, to get some market share. Let's take a look. 
Deep in the heart of the Arabian Desert, you'll find Abu Dhabi's most prolific oil field, making up half of the UAE's daily production capacity of nearly 4 million barrels. Oil was discovered here back in 1953, with the first exports coming a decade later. The UAE is now OPEC's third largest producer. This is the oil, Murban, a light crude with 60 customers in 30 countries, with heavy demand coming from China, Japan, and South Korea. From this day forward, it's out to make a bigger name for itself. Sultan Al-Jaber, the group chief executive of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, or ADNOC, has led the drive to take it to the global futures market, where over a billion barrels of contracts are traded daily. This new contract represents a great value proposition and a win-win for everyone involved. Customers will be able to better manage market risks, while more value will be created for producers. This means that Murban crude out of the UAE will take a seat alongside two global benchmarks, North Sea Brent and West Texas Intermediate, the first major shakeup in the oil futures market in over three decades. In a region that provides about a fifth of daily supplies and half of the proven oil reserves, strategists say it's high time to recognize the energy links between the Middle East and Asia. That always has been an anomaly that the Middle East uh, is the world's major oil exporting region, Asia is the world's major oil importing region, and yet, yet that crude has been priced off benchmarks traded in Europe. And uh, this, this launch uh, should address that anomaly if, it, if it's widely adopted. The Murban crude is shipped via pipeline to the UAE's Fujairah port in the east, which sits just south of the Strait of Hormuz, bypassing security risk at the choke point. A futures contract such as Murban cannot be large-scale overnight, strategists say, but ADNOC is coming to the fore with nine international oil companies and traders, which it hopes will build momentum. The international exchange known as ICE is partnering with the UAE for trading on ICE Futures Abu Dhabi, breaking with regional tradition, like in Saudi Arabia, which sets a fixed price each month as the world's number one exporter. Murban will trade on the open market with the global benchmark Brent. The strategic move that ADNOC is now uh, spearheading to have barrels free traded and, and really form part of that kind of free uh, uh, flow of, of crude around the world is, has, been a, has been a key inflection point. This represents a significant milestone for ADNOC, for ICE, for our customers, and of course for all our partners. Meaning the name Urban coming from this field is out to become a brand far beyond those who import it today. And let's take a look at the Murban uh, price, if you will, Allison. It's trading just above $63 a barrel. Uh, that will be determined over the week here, what OPEC uh, Plus does on Thursday at the full meeting. Uh, by the way, there's a billion barrels of oil traded. That's why Adnock's interested in getting in on this right now. Back to you. Okay, John Deuterios, thank you. And thanks for watching. I'm Allison Kosick. See you soon. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.